would open your Bible with me. Uh, We're looking at John chapter 1, the prologue of John. We're in this series, Pleased to Dwell, uh, in John's prologue, the first 18 verses of John. And just a reminder, this title comes from the theology expressed in Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. You might remember this stanza, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, remember last week we talked about the tension of Christmas. We're saying some pretty theologically loaded things as we sing our Christmas carols, whether or not we recognize it. We're singing about the Trinity. We're also singing about the reality that God has become flesh. Well, we're going to continue along this morning, and as I set up the thought, I want to ask you, when was the last time you went to a packed house at an open uh, box office, like, you know, opening night, feature film of the night? When was the last time you did that? Well, for me, I think it's been quite some time after the advent of streaming services like Netflix, Amazon Prime, that kind of stuff. I've become somewhat of a hermit, I admit. I don't go to the movies like I used to. But maybe you've done like a music production, a play, something like that. You remember opening night, don't you? It was awesome. Place would be packed. There'd be the soft murmur of the the crowd as you're waiting for the movie to come on and the ad reels are playing. And of course, mom and dad used to have us sneak in some food so we didn't have to pay for the expensive, expensive concessions. But then the lights go down and the screen widens and there's a hush over the crowd. And what brought you to the movies? Well, I suggest that it was probably a good trailer. A good trailer has one job. Its job is to whet your appetite for the feature film. And a good trailer does that by giving you just enough of the plot without spoiling the plot. We don't want any spoilers. We want to know just enough so that we can enjoy the experience of the movie. Now, if you think about the story of the Bible in those terms, the Old Testament is like the trailer. The appearance of a God in the Old Testament, I would say, is especially like the trailer, and we'll unpack that a little more as we move on. Now, opening night to this God's feature film is, of course, Christmas. It's the birth of Jesus, and then the rest of the feature film is Jesus's life as told to us in the four Gospels. So John's telling us that this morning in this one verse, John chapter 1, verse 18. Remember, we're jumping around to better understand theology about Jesus. He says this, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Each clause in this one little uh, verse, theologically loaded, no one has ever seen God. Now that is the message from the scriptures about God and For example, 1 Timothy 6.16, the Apostle Paul says that he dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see him, nor has anyone seen him. Uh, You go all the way back to the Old Testament, and we are already becoming aware of this about God in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. 
You might recall this story when Israel had built that golden calf. And Moses is going up onto Mount Sinai to mediate between God and the people of Israel. And, and in that process, Moses, Moses, this man who has this very unique, close relationship with God, he says, I want more. Show me your glory. And God responds to him positively in the sense that God wants to reveal his glory to him, but he says, you can't see my face. Because anyone who sees my face, they will not live. Now, I remember like when I was a younger Christian, this reality about God, we speak of it as the invisibility of God. And I remember thinking to myself, if only I could see God. Have you ever had that experience before where you just said to yourself, I wish I could just see him because if I could see him, then that would make my, my faith more real to me. It would seem like the relationship is more real. If I could just get a glimpse of him or even just a word, that would make everything better. And what ends up happening is when we think about the invisibility of God, sometimes he feels cold, distant, removed. Has God any of those things? Well, as I look at the Bible, the answer seems to be absolutely not. In fact, uh, he says to us, you can't see my face. If you see my face, you're going to die. So he finds creative ways in the Old Testament to reveal himself, to enter into relationship with humanity. For example, in the Old Testament, you see God calling out the nation of Israel and there to be a light amongst the nations. He creates a covenant with these people. He has them build a tabernacle and then a temple, and this would be a space where the two can come together and in some way form a relationship. He even has them establish this sacrificial system for dealing with their sin barrier. This is all telling us something about this God. It's telling us that God is intensely interested in a relationship with us. He's intensely interested in a relationship with you. In fact, as you look at God, he's always the initiator of the relationship. He's always taking the first steps. Sometimes it might feel like I'm doing all the work to have a relationship with God. I'm praying to him. I'm reading the Bible. But in reality, behind the scenes, God is always the one taking the first step, which begs the question when you think about it, how does it feel to know that the God of the universe who created everything is intensely interested in having a relationship with you? Now, if you know the story of the Bible, you might even feel a little confused because John says, no one has ever seen God. And yet, you know, as I think about the Old Testament, there's plenty of examples where it seems like someone had an actual physical encounter with the presence of God. Think about the story of Adam and Eve. Think about the story of Abraham. Think about the story of Moses. How does that work? How do these people have these physical encounters with this God, even though no one has ever seen him? 
Well, as we go back to John 1.18, we're actually going to see John unpack that for us. He says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, notice that he references two gods, theos. Now, we talked about the Trinity last week. There's one God, but there's three persons in the Godhead. So there is a no one has ever seen God. We refer to him as the unseeable God. Think of the Father. He's the God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen. And then there is the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's the seeable God. So as we go back into the Old Testament and we think of these instances where God is physically meeting with people, seeing them face to face like a friend meets a friend, that is the Son of God. Now, interestingly enough, John's gospel tells us about some of these encounters. Jesus actually reflects back on his life before he is born and tells us about times that he had met with people face to face. I'll give you one prime example of this in John chapter 8. John 8. Now, we're in another instance where Jesus is in a very tense exchange because of some of the things that he's saying in John chapter 8. Remember, Jesus was pretty provocative. So he talks about his relationship with the Father, and he contrasts it, and he says, you guys are from a different Father, and this Father's really bad. He's Satan. He's the evil one. And they say to them, no, 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 Jesus. Abraham is our Father. Do you think that you're greater than Abraham? And he fires off this tweet. He says to them, your Father, Abraham, was overjoyed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Judeans replied, but you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Now, the way that we unpack the meaning of this verse in the crowd's reply is we have to understand the meaning of day that Jesus is referencing there in verse 56. Abraham was overjoyed to see my day. Now, scholars have several different interpretations or understandings of what that term day is referencing there. Uh, Many scholars think that it's forward-looking. So Abraham, some 2,000 years ago, had some kind of prophetic vision of the future, and the day that he was overjoyed about is like the day that Jesus is presently living in in this story. He was looking forward to seeing Jesus' ministry. Another interpretation is even more forward-looking. They think that the day that Abraham was looking at was the end, like the day of the Lord, the consummation of things. But I don't think that's the right interpretation because I think the crowd perfectly understood what Jesus was saying, and they reacted to it. And what did they say? You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? So they're looking and they're saying, how is it that you could have had any kind of face-to-face interaction with someone who lived 2,000 years ago? That's not possible, Jesus. You're crazy. Now, when would have Abraham had an experience 
where he met someone and he was overjoyed. I think it's referring to Genesis chapter 17 and 18. Now, in this passage, what happens is the seeable God appears to Abraham to tell Abraham that he is about to have a son. And Abraham, of course, is wowed. I mean, just imagine hearing a message like that. You're almost 100 years old. Your wife is 90 years old. And, and, and this seeable God comes and says, you're about to have a son. That thing that was on their heart for all their life, how would you respond to that? Well, Scripture tells us how Abraham responded, Genesis 17, 7. It says that Abraham fell face down. He laughed to himself. Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at age 99 or 90? And, and you, as you read that verse, you might ask yourself the question, is Abraham laughing at God? Is this a laugh of disbelief? Is he finding this to be so incredulous that he says to himself, that can't happen, I can't believe this? Well, Paul doesn't think so. Because in Romans chapter 4, Paul references this account. And he says, he, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Think about this. Think about that time in your life when you received the best news you'd ever heard. And maybe it was the announcement of a long-awaited child or a wedding proposal with an affirmative response or something else. And, and, and when you receive that news, the first response was just to laugh, be like, I can't believe this is happening. This is incredible. And then you become overjoyed with the news. It just kind of takes over everything in your world. It seems too good to be true. You see, Abraham and Sarah, they felt that way twice with two encounters with the seeable God. These were the happiest days of their life, so happy that they decide to name their son Isaac. He laughs. Now, how in the world could Jesus have this encounter with Abraham? Well, again, he sends another tweet, and again, this tweet breaks the internet. Listen to what he says in John 8, 58. He says, I tell you the solemn truth. Before Abraham came into existence, I am. Now, what is he saying there? Well, by saying I am, Jesus is claiming the special name that God declared of himself in Exodus chapter 3. He is calling himself Yahweh. Essentially, he's saying, you're, you're like, worried about 2,000 years ago, I don't, you know, time doesn't really matter to me in that way because I've seen all days. In fact, I existed before there were days because I am Yahweh. 
Now, last week, I, I said that some people struggle with the deity of Christ because in the scriptures, in the New Testament, they say, well, Jesus never claimed that he was God. And I said, yeah, in one sense, you could say that because he didn't like wear a sign and walk around with big flashing likes like, hey, everyone, I'm God. Look at me because he had to reveal his glory over time. So what did he do? He claims the authority of God. He shows the work of God. And now here in John 8, 58, he is claiming the very name of God, which is about as explicit of a claim to being deity as you can find. He was God. As you read through John's gospel, he's intending, John is intending to draw you out to be asking a very big question who is this Jesus? Who is he? Why would he come? What would his coming have to do with my life as a person? And so he gives us all of this incredible truth about the nature of Jesus. He moves into the next clause, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Two more just theologically loaded clauses. The only God, the word only could be translated from the Greek word monogenes. Probably the best translation of that word would be the unique and beloved one who is himself God. So Jesus is monogenes, emphasizing the uniqueness of God the Son, that he alone is actually the Son of God. We said last week, he's not figuratively the Son of God. He actually shares, if we're putting it into DNA terms, he shares the very DNA of God. Now, I think a reasonable person's going to ask, well, how does that work? And what does that mean? How can Jesus be God's Son? And remember, we talked about the Trinity, and we said that there are elements of the Trinity that are mystery, that they go beyond human imagination. I can't conceive how all of this works. And yet, we can also say that it doesn't mean we can't understand anything about it. So what can we understand about the sonship of the Son of God? Well, one thing we know is what it can't mean. Did God the Father create God the Son? And I hope you're saying absolutely not. (laughs) He didn't. That matter was settled at the Council of Nicaea. Remember, Arius said that there was a time when God the Son was not. Athanasius comes along, he corrects the church, and he says there's never a time when the Son was not. He is eternal. He's beyond all time. He's always existed. Now, Jesus actually gives us an understanding of what this sonship means as he talks to his relationship with the Father and he correlates it with the normal understanding of the father-son relationship in this ancient Jewish culture. See, what do we learn about the son from this culture? Well, one New Testament scholar, Anthony Harvey, he outlines three defining aspects of the father-son relationship in first century Israel. First, the son 
obeys the Father. Second, a son serves as an apprentice under his father. How did they learn their trade during this time? Well, they watched what their father did. If their father was a carpenter, then it was highly likely that they were going to grow up to be a carpenter as well. Thirdly, a son serves as an agent of the father, or he mediates the business of the father. So the other thing we learn about this relationship in Jewish culture, we could take it a step further, is it was like permanent in the sense that dad was always the dad and the son is always the son. So in the same way, Jesus tells us about his relationship with the father, that he is eternally the son to his father, and he relates to the father in those three ways, the same three ways. So how does the son do this? Well, in John 5, he says that the son only does what the father tells him to do. He looks to the father. He's the, fa the, fa he's the father's apprentice. And when the father works, the son works in like fashion with him. In John 17, he tells us that the son receives his name from the father. He says the father has given the son his name. Now, what name is he referring to there? Well, I think he's referring to the name Yahweh, the name that he lays claim to in John 8, 58. And then listen to John 14, 28, because he goes even further than that. He says that the father is greater than the son. Now, I hope you're like, huh? Well, how does that work? I thought we said last week that he's God's equal, that God the Father and God the Son are equal. And we did say that last week. So you can't think of great in terms of better. No, great, in the context of John 14, 28, is referring to role. So in the family structure, the Father is superior in role to the son. Think of military categories, military chain of command. You have a general who is greater than a captain. A captain is greater than a sergeant. We're not speaking ontologically. We're not saying that they're a superior human being. We're saying that they are superior in rank. That's why Jesus says the father is greater than I am, not the father is better than I am. So equal in essence, yet the son gladly submits to the father. And he doesn't resent the father's leadership. He doesn't feel demeaned or devalued. Uh, he is the uniquely beloved son. He's so united in heart and purpose with the father that he actually says, I and the father are one. I love to do the will of my father. This is not a relationship of dominance and ser servitude. No, the way that he portrays his relationship with the father is the father embodies the best of fatherhood and none of the negatives. And as the son of God, he's like, I love to follow my father's leadership. I love to do his will. I love to do what he does. In fact, as you examine this relationship, this relationship that's shared between the father and the son is vastly deeper than any relationship you can imagine. 
John says that in the next clause. He says, the only God who is at the Father's side. Now, that term side is the Greek word kalpos. And he's depicting in this word a son who is snuggled into the chest of a father. Now, I admit that 10 years ago, I would have found that kind of language, maybe 15 years ago, pretty, like, you know, weird. Like, you know, men don't snuggle into men. That's kind of odd, isn't it? And that was until, of course, I had children of my own. I mean, just look at that cute little squishy baby, you know? You just, you just want to grab him up and hug him in tight and never let go. Nothing weird about it. What I find incredible about the relationship between the father and the son is the father is never ashamed to express his love and his affection for his son, never to show it. He's never ashamed to show it to him. He's never afraid, ashamed to say it to him. And that creates a level of security within the Trinitarian relationship that is unparalleled. And you think about your own children. They need that from you. They need a father who looks them in the eye and says, I love you. Some of us carry the, the emotional trauma of never having heard that from our father. I show them my love. I don't tell them I love them. Well, God the Father tells God the Son, I love you. And God the Son is secure in the love of his father eternally. And what's even more incredible about all of this is that God the Son came to wrap you up into that love that they share together. You are beloved too. And we see this in John's gospel. You see, we're told it in certain verses, but we also see it because there's this mysterious figure that appears in John's gospel. Maybe you've read the gospel and you've seen this figure. We're never told who he is, but somehow John suggests that this mysterious figure experiences Jesus' love and, and friendship in a deeper way than the rest of the disciples. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loved or the beloved disciple. One of the most striking examples of this mysterious figure is found in John chapter 13. It's at the Last Supper when Jesus announces to the disciples, one of you is going to leave here and betray me. Now think about the confusion that that brings to the 12 as they're sitting around the table with Jesus. Everybody's looking internally. They're like, could it be me? Surely it can't be me. And they're looking to their right and their left, and they're thinking, well, who here? Like, we all follow you. We all love you. We all want to be in relationship with you. They didn't know that Judas Iscariot's sitting at the table, and he's about to depart, and he's about to go do the deed. So there's this exchange that happens in John 13 that's only found in this gospel. It's John 13, 23 to 26. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at a table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he 
to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, we're going to notice a couple of things about this passage. First, notice that the disciple whom Jesus loved is reclining at table at Jesus' side. Kalpas, same word as John 1.18. He's leaning into Jesus just like the Son of God leans into the Father. Another thing that's incredible, Peter motions to this beloved disciple to ask him what Jesus is talking about. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel, who's the leader of the 12? It's Peter. He's always the out front, take charge disciple. Everyone's looking to him. And yet, here at this critical moment, this Last Supper, he is not sitting in the place of extra special friendship. In fact, Peter thinks the beloved disciple stands a better chance of getting the insider information. And you know what? He's right. The beloved disciple leans over. Jesus gives him the information, and we're not even told if the beloved disciple passes the information on to anyone else. Maybe there was a confidentiality to the piece of information that Jesus had shared with him. Which begs the question, who is the beloved disciple? Well, we get the answer from John 21, 23. The writer of the gospel says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote them down. In other words, John the Apostle is the beloved disciple. And he wrote himself into the story in this unanimous way to show the special love and friendship and depth of relationship that he shared with Jesus, the Son of God. And I believe that he wrote it anonymously this way because he was humble. He didn't want to come out and say, I, John, was Jesus. I had the deepest relationship with Jesus. I shared this intimate, personal friendship with him in a way that the other disciples did not. Now, you might ask the question, well, then why write about it at all? Why not just keep that to yourself? I think he writes about it because John's telling us this is the best part of discipleship. When you hear the word disciple defined, normally it's defined as following Jesus, and that's a great definition. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a disciple, you have to do what he says. You have to obey his commands. You have to walk in his footsteps. But there's more to discipleship than that. And John is showing us through this beloved disciple that discipleship is really about sharing in the secure, loving relationship of obedience with Jesus. The same kind of way that Jesus relates to the Father, you're supposed to relate to Jesus. Now think of it like this. If you're ever struggling in your walk of faith, it might have something to do with the depth of intimacy that you're sharing with Jesus. You see, the only way to deny yourself and follow him the only way to get to the place where you're saying, I love your commands more than I love things that I think are going to bring me pleasure, is you have to become convinced 
that loving Jesus is more important than anything else in this world. You have to find yourself fully secure in his love. Your affections have to be totally turned towards the Son of God, where you say to yourself, I want Jesus more than I want anything else in this world. And the beloved disciple got that in the life and ministry of Jesus. And he writes it into this gospel so that we would get it too. That's what it's all about. God the Son came so that we might enter into the same kind of relationship that God the Son shares with God the Father. You see, John closes his prologue with these profound words. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. If you want to understand the Gospel of John, it's all here in this prologue. In fact, we see it in the clauses. They're theologically loaded, but it even goes further than that. We see it in the structure of John's gospel, too. If you're thinking about the structure, how does structure communicate to us? Well, think about the structure of John's gospel like a bookshelf. So you have all of these books laid out on this bookshelf. On the beginning of the bookshelf, the first bookend is John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we go all the way to John chapter 20. You probably remember that story. You have the Apostle Thomas. He's up in that upper room. He says to the other disciples, I don't believe that Jesus is risen again from the dead unless I put my finger into the nail imprint in his hand, I'm not going to believe. And then what happens? Jesus appears, and Thomas doesn't need to put his finger in the nail imprint. He falls on his knees, and he says what? My Lord and my God. That's the bookends of the story. Now, these ancient writers, they would bookend stories like this to help you get the big idea of the core theme. What's the core theme? Jesus is God. The Son of God has come. To get into right relationship with God, you have to know him. Well, there's a little one of these devices. It's called inclusio in the prologue. John 1.1, Jesus is called the Word. He's the communication of God. He's the self-expression of God. In John 1.18, he's the God, who is the seeable God, who has made the unseeable God known. Now that word made known is where we derive our word exegesis. Exegesis simply means to explain or interpret a text. So that's what I'm doing right now with John chapter 1 verse 18. I am exegeting the text. So John 1.1, Jesus is the communication of God. John 1.18, Jesus is the exegesis of God or the explanation of God. No one has ever seen God, but if you want to come into right relationship with God, you have to experience the word of God who has made him known. You can only come to God through the person of Jesus. He tells us everything that we need to know about God. And what does he tell us about God? Well, we learn it in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only monogamies son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?
Listen, friend, this morning, as you're contemplating your relationship with God, I want to invite you into this relationship. God the Son came at Christmas so that you could be wrapped up in this relationship of love that's shared between Father and Son. The Bible says the way that you come into this relationship is by faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I just invite you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, to follow along in your heart with me with this short prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment as best as I know how. I turn my life over to your care and control. Amen.